Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh. You have joined us for All's Well That Ends Well. And ordinarily we start off with a Shakespeare clip to kind of get your mind in the Shakespeare mode. But the clip that we want to play for this week is very, very subtextual. There's a conversation happening between a countess and a young woman named Helena And I just want to explain the clip before you listen to it, because I think you'll enjoy it a lot more. The countess, a very wealthy lady, is speaking to Helena. Helena is not wealthy. She is lowborn. And Helena is in love with the countess's son. And this is the plot of our play. Helena is hoping to get with Bertram, but Bertram is highborn, just like his mother. And Helena here played by Joanna Horton in the Royal Shakespeare Company's production. And the Countess, played here by Charlotte Cornwell, are having this conversation in which the Countess kind of wants Helena to think of her as a mother, but Helena is kind of like, but wait, I don't want to think of you like that. I want to think of you as a mother-in-law at some point down the line. Let's listen. What is your pleasure, madam? You know, Helen, I am a mother to you. Mine honourable mistress. Nay, a mother. Why not a mother? When I said a mother, methought you saw a serpent. What's in mother that you start at it? I say I am your mother, and put you in the catalogue of those that were in womb in mine. You ne'er oppressed me with a mother's groan, yet I express to you a mother's care. God's mercy, maiden, does it curd thy blood to say I am thy mother? What's the matter? that this distempered messenger of wet, the many-coloured iris, rounds thine eye. Why? That you are my daughter? But I am not. I say I am your mother. Pardon, madam. The Count Rosilian cannot be my brother. 
Uh, I am from humble, he from honoured name. No note upon my parents, his all noble. My master, my dear lord, he is, and I, his servant, live, and will his vassal die. That was the Countess and Helena in Act 1, Scene 3 of All's Well That Ends Well, in which these two characters are kind of having this sort of subtextual conversation about what is our relation here? Because Helena wants her to be the mother-in-law, not mother. But we will get to that. Um, let me introduce my guests. I have brought back for this show the kind of stars of Taming of the Shrew. I'm affectionately calling you guys, Matt and Nora, the Shrew Crew. So Matt Bianco is Chief Operating Officer of the Circe Institute, which is the host of this show finished his PhD last year in the humanities at Faulkner University. And we're also welcoming back Nora Ankrum, who helped found the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival and Alchemy Theater in West Virginia. Um, and she also is a director for Classical Conversations and has an MA in political theory from Marshall University. Nora, for our purposes, the thing that I'm most interested in hearing about from you is you basically spent the whole last year with Taming of the Shrew, and I would just love to hear what you've been doing for the last year, where you've been doing it, and how it's gone. Yeah, so um, uh, so when we did the podcast on the Taming of the Shrew, uh, that, was, that was part of my effort to redeem the play for myself mm -hmm. um, because I was going to teach it uh, in the spring, and I did, and... Um, from that, I decided to really lean into it. And my uh, my theater company, Alchemy Theater, we <clears> produced um, The Taming of the Shrew. And um, and actually, we're still producing. We're, we're on tour right now. We're touring to local schools. Um, in fact, I have a tour on Wednesday this week. Um, so we, we've cut it down. We pared it down to about an hour and a half. And then we do a talk back afterward. And I really leaned into it because I am playing Kate. So um, Yes, you did lean into yeah. it. I really lean to do it. Yeah. Um, I say that whole last speech and everything. Uh, so, <laughs> and I was really careful. We, we cut, I was very, uh, very concerned that we cut no meaning away. So in mm. all of the cutting that we did, um, I wouldn't allow us to cut any of Kate's or Petruchio's lines. Um, I was, I was very insistent about that because I didn't want to ever take the easy way yeah. around it. So yeah. anyway, um, it's been great. We, uh, we started rehearsals for that earlier this summer. We did a couple preview performances over the summer. We performed as part of our week-long West Virginia Shakespeare Festival um, just at the beginning of September. And now we're on tour for a couple more weeks. So tell schools. us about these schools that you're performing for. These are public schools um, are they a variety of schools? Yeah, I mean, this is our first time going on tour, so we're, we've made it available to any schools in the area. But yeah, I, I, I believe they're all public schools. We're doing one um, free community performance, but okay. otherwise it's all public schools. And where yeah. are you performing? What time of day are you performing? I mean, any time that they can have us. We have performed, oh man, our second preview performance was in the tiniest space. It was it was at a local, it was at Marshall, um, local university. It was yeah. so, so small. In fact, they still had those, uh, plexiglass, uh, like rectangles oh, yeah. hanging from the ceilings, you know, for COVID. And I, in a blackout, I walked right into one. 
Oh um, no, like no, I no. walked directly into it. So, but you know, I was angry anyway, so it, it worked. <laughs> um, would you remind our audience, what is it that Kate says at the end of that play? The part that you, I mean, you, I'm sure you could just like give us the, the whole, mean, all the lines right here. But yeah. what does she say that's so fraught? The, the one, the, the worst part of it for me, the hardest part of it for me is what she says. And I, I take this directly to um, our Baptista and our Tranio. Mm. Um, she says, I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace mm. or seek for rule supremacy and sway where they are bound to serve, love, and obey. And you say it. That you one. didn't cut it. I didn't cut it. Uh, no. Any any <laughs> negative feedback? I'm sh- I would just assume. Oh, yeah. You, you, <laughs> yeah. So you've got some negative feedback I want to hear. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. Um, we've most of our audience are students. Um, we did a couple of uh, just regular theatrical performances. And um, the only like really they, they all have questions and they all want to talk about it, which is why we do the talk back. But the only like really negative one came from an adult. Um, who just like, as soon as the talk back started, her hand shot up. She, she said, why do you think it's responsible to take this misogynistic and toxic relationships play to students and to children? And, you know, that we're harming yeah. the youth. By yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I answered the question as, as best I could and as honestly as I could. And mostly my answer was, um, well, that we should talk about that. Mm. What do you think? You yeah. Know, um, but she she didn't like my answer at all. Um, but uh, but the students have uh, our, one of our first school performances. A, a young woman asked, um, "Why why did you pick this play? It just seems so hard. It yeah. seems so misogynistic. Like why?" And so we we just talked about it. And man, it's, it was some of the best conversation. It was the the students were really engaged, and um, it, it led to some some great topics. Really. So really. Yeah. yeah it's been great. I, I'm, I'm so impressed and I wish that you guys would tour Georgia, but that's probably a little ways off. <laughs> maybe, maybe someday, I'll, maybe you'll tour Georgia it. with all's well that ends well. That's what we'll hope hey, for. Listen, I've thought about that. <laughs> hey, Matt, um, you have not really been that busy since we last, since we recorded uh, Taming of the Shrew. You've only been running a nonprofit, you've only finished a PhD and you've only married off one of your sons. I mean, I guess we've kind of, we kind of were expecting more. (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind of a bum. It's what it sounds like. And I started an MDiv. And you started an MDiv. Nice. Yeah. Like three weeks ago, a month ago. Cause you just, you just didn't have enough education in your life. I did. bored. I was bored. My wife was like, my wife said, what, um, what can you do that would keep you out of my hair? Uh huh. I said, well, there's this MDiv program. And then th- they also offer a master's in theological studies. I can do either of those. And she said, which one would keep you out of my hair more? <laughs> so I'm in the MDiv program. Well, congratulations to her. And congratulations I said to her. You should spend less energy warring against me and more time kneeling in submission. <laughs> <laughs> You're picking up right where you left go, off. Matt? Yeah, how did that go? How did go? that go? <laughs> um, I'm in the MDiv program. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
Um, you guys, all's well that ends well. Um, just yeah, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, let's talk about this for a second. In fact, let's talk about because it for five. Let's talk about it for five podcasts. For my, yeah, because this, I, I, I've, I'm picking up a pattern here for which plays you bring Nora and me on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nora, have you noticed mm-hmm. this? Yeah, I have noticed. I have. Yeah, I don't get any of the nice easy ones. <laughs> yeah, can you describe that pattern, Matt? Um. Hmm. Let's see. They tend to be about the relationship between men and women. They tend to be sexualized. They tend to be controversial. Which you could say all the same things about Romeo and Juliet, except probably the controversial part. It's not particularly controversial. Taming of the Shrew is, and I think this play is going to be. And you are 100% right that I brought you guys on for these plays because I like that you guys are so good at like holding a conviction about something and being like very conversant with people who don't hold that same conviction. I don't know anything about if you have convictions about this play. I don't want to presume that. Um, but that was part of the reason that I brought you guys on for Taming of the Shrew. And I was right. You guys were terrific in like holding these positions having great conversations about him. So that's why I brought you back. Congratulations, question mark. Thanks, Tim. I like the problem children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me give just a little overview of this play. The first thing that I want to say is I, this is not on the greatest hits for me, but largely because I was ignorant about all's well that ends well. I had seen one production I remembered some things about it, but it didn't make a deep impression. And then I had a friend this summer write and say, I just saw a production of All's Well That Ends Well. What an incredible play. What an incredible play. So I (laughs) dove back into it again. Oh my goodness. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, It is, it was written right in the middle for me of Shakespeare's kind of most potent period. So for me, the tragedies are like the real high watermark. Of course, he does, you know, comedies really well. He does histories very well. But for me, Macbeth and Hamlet and Othello and Lear and Coriolanus, that's where, those are kind of like the real mountaintops for me. And All's Well That Ends Well is written right in the middle of all these. So it's part, this is kind of like the high tide of his creative genius for me. Um, Mm. you can see certain kind of recurring patterns. Um, there's a recurring pattern from pattern from much ado about nothing soldiers home from war and they're out to kind of like, I I don't know, kind of like make their mark while they're at home before they have to go back to war. And Bertram, the son is very much like that he is about to go back to war. Um, his love interest at the beginning of the play, it's not his love interest. Helena is, she's really interested in him, but she does not consider herself worthy because nobody else would consider her worthy because of her, the, where she is born. She's just born low. She's basically a serving woman to the countess Bertram's mother. But, 
early on in the play, we discover that Helena is the daughter of a famous physician, a famous doctor, and she has inherited a kind of secret remedy that she can end up using on the king, king who is desperately ill. Bertram, meanwhile, her love interest, has gone to serve the king. Nobody can get him better. All these doctors are scrambling around. They've got all these potential cures. None of them work. And then she comes in. The king knows that she, who her father was. She comes to his bedside. She administers this cure. And what do you know? That's, he gets better. And then he promises to Helena any of the young men from court, and these would have been really wealthy, high-class men, you just tell me which one you want, and I will grant it. And one of the men who's in court is Bertram, and she, of course, selects Bertram. And we like it could be a one-act play, right? It could be a simple one-act play. She picks Bertram, and Bertram is like, great, awesome, I love it. The king is going to make her wealthy and high-born, Everything's great here, but Bertram doesn't get with it. Bertram is like, no, I am going to wave her away. I don't want her. I'm not interested in her. And so that's the kind of the double hook of the play. The first hook for me was I love him so much, but I, you know, don't have the kind of stature to marry him. And then the second hook of the play is, well, she got made by the king to have that stature, but he refuses her. And I'll say one more thing, and then I've got some questions for you guys. The thing that made it really sting is that I watched a film production. And in the film production, do you know who plays Bertram? The same guy who play, who's the lead character in Chariots of Fire. The guy who plays Eric Little. Really? Yes. Wow. And that actor has such a sweet face and you know him as Eric Little in the movie and he's so, you know, he's innocent and he's this great runner, but he's in service of God and that's the only thing that matters for him. And he turns out in acts one and two of this play to just be, he's kind of terrible. He's terrible. Okay. In act one? Is it, I think right. it's an act two you that he. <laughs> Matt, maybe you should talk about. Um, you asked that question because you're approaching this play in a different manner than you've approached plays on this show before. Right. So when you asked us to do this one, I um, I don't I hadn't read it, and so I had I had a choice going into this. Right? Do I? Yeah. Do I read the whole play multiple times, watch as many versions as I can, productions, you know, and then and then just immerse myself in it and then, you know, speak from a place of uh, a deep relationship with the play. Right, right. Or do I be that guy who it's just going to unfold itself to me as we go week to week? Mm. And I thought that this would be a good one to try that out on. So, you know, we'll see how it goes, but I'm going to try this to see where I'm talking to two people that know what's happening. <laughs> and I'm going to be the guy that I can only, I only know what's in front of me, mm. you know, what we've just read and or yeah. have you know, recently read, except the basic summary. Like I know the basic summary, right? I know right. what makes it controversial. I know what makes it, you know, 
uh, I know it makes it what well, makes people want to question it as a comedy, right? I get, I like, I know that. The uh, man, I want to jump in. I want, yeah, I don't know much. What I want to know what is the thing about this play that people find controversial, and then the second thing, and I'm going to ask this of both of you, is why is this a comedy other than the ending? Why is this considered a comedy? But first, Matt, the controversy about the play. It well, it has it's got the um, the Rachel and Leah incident in it, right? There's a bed swap mm, where he gets mm-hmm. tricked into sleeping with the wrong woman, mm-hmm. and that's um, that's not that's not cool. <laughs> I mean, this is not that's the controversy, right? People don't like the idea of tricking somebody into having a having sexual intercourse with somebody other than the one they think they're having it with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, sounds like a legitimate complaint. <laughs> it sounds like a legitimate complaint. The legitimacy it of sure the complaint, does. right? We, I um, am going to give a little shout out to Lee University. They brought a bunch of students down to the Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern yesterday. My friend, Dr. Tom Pope, took them and we saw Much Ado About Nothing. And it was, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And, and afterwards, um, Dr. Pope led them in a little talk back. And one of the questions he asked was, is it okay for your best friend to woo the woman that you love and then kind of like say, oh, actually, I wooed you for this guy. So if you remember, Hero is wooed for Claudio by this prince who's, you know, really well-spoken and he woos Hero. And then he's like, hey, actually, Hero, it's Claudio that was interested in you. And of course, everyone's like, no, no, it's totally illegitimate. It has to be authentic. It has to come from your own heart. This play, this is a whole other level. Like the bed swap is a whole other level. This is not right. like, can you woo for somebody else? Okay. My question, and Nora, I want to ask you first, is this play a comedy? Uh, yeah, I thought about that a lot. Um, and I was actually, I was talking with my, uh, my, uh, my partner in the theater about this, this question. And um, I think for a couple of reasons, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, first, that it is necessarily a comedy because it's not a tragedy. Right. Uh-huh. So if it has to be one or the other, then it's definitely a comedy, not a tragedy. Yeah. Um, and we talked about we talked about several different tenets of the comedies and, you know, sort of what makes a comedy a comedy, mostly that the protagonist gets what she wants mm. in the end. Right. So that makes it a comedy rather than a tragedy. Um, but one thing that we, we thought of uh, we talked about was um, the the role of the fool in uh in comedies specifically in that a lot of times they they are there to speak truth to power Mm. um but a lot of times they are the author's um mouthpiece uh shakespeare's mouthpiece right and and, and what is what is shakespeare actually saying like where is his voice in this play and um and i I, once i started thinking about it that way i found the fool um maybe giving us hints as to to what what is Shakespeare's opinion here mm. about some of these, these issues? Um, so for that reason, I definitely now think it's a comedy. I don't yeah. think it's like a, 
slap your knee comedy. It's probably more of a dark comedy, but um, yeah, I do think it is. Matt, you have decided to only read an act at a time uh, from act one, from your reading of act one. Is this a comedy? Well, <laughs> I don't, I think that's impossible to know. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, I know it's a comedy because it's in the comedies book from my, <laughs> you know, I, I have a three volume collection of the complete works and it's in the comedies volume. So I know it's comedy for that reason. And it's, you know, there's, there's love as you know, the clip that we listened to at the beginning from Helena mm. is, her kind of what did we i don't know if we got to the whole part where she actually says that she loves the sun mm. i don't know where the clip ended but the uh the so there's love involved so then my assumption is that if it's a comedy and there's love in it then there's going to be a marriage and i assume mm -hmm. that it's going to end in a marriage based on those and that it's going to be a welcomed marriage I mean, mm -hmm. I mean it, like much, if it's much, if it's like much ado about nothing, which I'm sure I'm the bed swap thing, like, because I know about that, the bed swap thing kind of harkens back to the bride swap thing in much ado mm -hmm. about nothing. Right. Right. So, you know, he kind of goes into that wedding, I think perhaps a little bit begrudgingly maybe, but then, you know, it ends with him welcoming the marriage. So I assume because it's a comedy, it's going to have that, but I don't know, like Bertram might be, yeah, might be, you know, doing this with his, you know, arm twisted behind his back or his fingers crossed or something. I have no idea. So what do we think about? Which would make it a Bertram. dark comedy for me if that were the case. For if sure. he actually, if he actually receives the marriage and says, yes, I see I was wrong and this is absolutely right. Then I would call this a straight up comedy. Yeah. 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 I want to talk about Bertram first. He is, I think, our secondary protagonist. Our primary protagonist is Helena. Let's talk about Bertram. Um, again, just from Act One, what are our impressions of him, Nora? Do you do you like him? Does he get any favor for you because you maybe you like the Countess? Like, where where do you stand with um, Bertram? So Act One, I'm trying to trying to just confine it to Act One, right? I think because we don't we don't hear honestly a whole lot of him no. in mm -hmm. Act One. We we don't. It's mostly her, and it's mostly the setup with Helena and the yeah. Countess. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I don't. I don't like him. Yeah. No. Yes. I don't. <laughs> it's tough to like. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Is there a? No, no, no. I, I, it's true. I don't really have a lot to base it on in Act One. That's true. Because here's the thing for me in Act One, right? When I'm thinking about Bertram, like where where's this guy going? Because I don't, I can't tell. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously, obviously, I like the Countess right off the bat, mm -hmm. pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I, I think like this this lady's she's she's cool, and then so then I assume a certain degree of her goodness kind of passes on to the son, and she she says that the fathers oh. did right. So then I assume that you know this is. This is uh, uh, nature, you know, the no, the nobility of being passed on by nature. But there are some clues that make me wonder. For example, in the when the count he like she they're talking the countess and and 
well, we should have a conversation about this, but Le Few or whatever, the smoky guy, I don't know. Um, He, uh, they're talking and then Bertram kind of like interjects because Le Few asks her a question and then Bertram kind of interrupts and says, I, I, I need a blessing to go. Can we, I need to get on the road. Like, he says, yeah. "Madam, I desire your holy wishes," and then, mm. and then she gives them, and they they almost kind of smack a little bit of Polonius's instructions to yeah, I thought his so son too. Hamlet, right? I thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is just a condensed version of Polonius, right? Like, uh-huh. like if Polonius actually had wit and therefore brevity, then this was <laughs> what his speech, his goodbye speech, would have been, right? Uh, so then she says that, and I'm like, okay, well, whatever. And then, and then Helena loves him. And so then there's, he's got that in his, another vote in his favor. Right. But then in the scene with the King in act two, uh, there's just a little bit, it's, it's like his responses are too perfect. Mm. Like they're oh. like, the King gives him all these compliments. And then he's, he says, um, thank your majesty, which, you know, I mean, maybe that's just normal talk. I don't know, but uh, there's just like, I don't know. There's just these like little short lines that he has, but I'm not sure if, if there's a sincere desire to love and serve the King as his father, or if it's, I'm just fulfilling my, I'm like checking off the boxes of duty kind of thing. I can't tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think, I, I think for me, especially if we're going to confine it to act one, um, you know, he, he's a grieving young man, right? Like his father has just died. It it opens with uh, the countess talking about burying her husband and now sending off her son. So, you know, the, the whole reason that he's going to the court of the King of France is because his father has died. So, um, you know, his, his actions, I will, I will take with that grain of salt that he's, you know, he's grieving and he's presumably a young man. Um, but so is Helena's also grieving. Mm-hmm. So, and she's right. doing a little bit better with it. Come on, Bertram. I mean, yeah. a little. Yeah, I, I think. Um, so, yeah, the play begins with this burial imagery. The Countess says, "In delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband." Um, and I, I, for me, that's something that we need to kind of keep an eye on throughout the rest of the play. This imagery of death and burial. You know, I was noticing the, the um, sort of the antithesis there, the, the, in the theming of the overall play of, of death. And then so many themes of life as well. Mm. Right. Um, There's a lot of sexual talk, of course, but there, there's a lot of talk about um, having children and conceiving and and all of that as well. Um, So I don't know. I I wonder if that's a juxtaposition to, to pay attention to as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, let's talk about Helena. What are our first impressions? Start with you, Matt. Uh, do you like Helena to begin with? What are your overall impressions? I like her. I think, I mean, I like her cause I, the countess likes her. Yeah. So I, apparently my hinge pin here is the countess all the way through so far. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, I, I like who the countess likes. And mm-hmm. so I, I like her. I like that she, I like that she expresses her love for Bertram, but also is kind of, she's kind of disappointed in herself because it's causing her to forget her father. Mm. So there's a little bit mm. of disappointment with it, with regards to it, but also like she's, 
given to it, which which could be a sign that it's it's bad, but I don't have any reason to know that yet. So yeah. Mm. So there's that kind of in her first uh you know, soliloquy or monologue, whatever. But then she has this weird conversation with uh par- paroles, paroles. Um <laughs> we gotta figure out how to say that. We've got to figure out how to say that words. Like in French, it just in his words? name means words. Wait, really? Uh, Does it really? I'm pretty sure, yeah. I mean, in French, it would have one L, but yeah, it's that's interesting. Yeah, it is. Word. Words. And then hmm. the clown's name, Lavache, I think that means cow, the cow. Hmm. Um, or Lavache, I don't know how they say it in French. The So he has this weird conversation with him about her virginity, which yeah. seems a little bit like. I mean, he starts the conversation like he and he brings up the topic of virginity, but she's kind of forward with him about it. And then she kind of gets to this place where she almost stumbles and mentions her love for Bertram. And then she kind of backs Mm. off and he notices it and he calls her out on it. And then she Mm. but she kind of she's able to talk her way around it. So so there's something about her likable there. Excuse me, because she's um, she has this. I mean, she's, there's a, there's a wittiness to her, right? Like she's kind of, you know, kind of Kate ish or, or, um, uh, what's the gal from much Beatrice. Beatrice. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like her. Nora. Oh, and, yeah, then, oh, and then when she gets this. confronted, when she gets confronted by the countess, she, like, she tries to stall it, but then when the countess pushes, she, She's honest. And I'm, I oh, when the honest. countess wants to know, like, hey, are you in love with my son? Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Right. Like she's like, pardon me. Yeah, like, I, please don't push me any further. It's like, I don't want to say. And yeah. then she says it. Yeah. I love that relationship between the countess and Helena. I think me it's a, too. a great one. Me too. And I, I was going to say, one, one of our topics in our talkbacks with Shrew has been um, just Shakespeare's women and how he writes just really great mm women um they're they're always smart they're always um i mean i think i think they're always smart and witty and um really in in the relationships they tend to be the you know the intellectual superiors a lot of times like he was he was pretty cool in writing women which was one of the one of the redeeming qualities there but uh, you mentioned the uh how, how did you say his name can you say it again parole parole Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny. He enters and literally he just says, are you meditating on your virginity? Yeah. Like, nice. Hey, soft how's it opening. going? Yeah. Virginity? <laughs> Hello. Hi. Good afternoon to you too. Yeah. Right. Pleasure to meet you. In America, you. he would have walked up to her and said, so how much do you make a year? Like, it's that kind of awkwardness, right? Social awkwardness, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, right. Right. For but, sure. but it doesn't, she, she, I don't know. It sounds kind of weird too. Cause she's just like, as a matter of fact. She matches <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now that you mention it, right? Yeah. He's, he's so crass and um, just, yeah, just really brash. Um, Nora, I'm thinking about these different women that Shakespeare has written and Kate in Tammy the Shrew is sort of like, uh, she is like the trapped female, let's say. Mm. Um I'm thinking, so uh, what I like about these different oh gosh, I thought Shakespeare's heroines <laughs> <laughs> is that it's almost like he does, Shakespeare puts these bright, capable women in different kind of harrowing circumstances and given their kind of different um, 
gifts, talents, predilections, they respond differently. So maybe Kate is trapped. I don't how would we describe Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing? She's probably the wittiest of his heroines. She's not trapped. Certainly. What is she? Um she's maybe she's just cynical. She's been she's been mm-hmm. burned. Jaded. She, yeah, yeah, she's jaded. That's yeah. jaded now, is a good word. Yeah. Helena, what is Helena? What is Helena? How are we going to describe Helena? What is what are the circumstances she finds herself in? I mean, man, she is bold, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, she she hatches this whole convoluted thing to go and, and catch a man, right? First of all, in her day, she's a, a woman pursuing a man, mm-hmm. which just doesn't isn't a thing, right? But the way that she goes about it, um, I mean, she's gonna she's gonna offer her intellect, she's gonna offer specific skills. Um, and then as we see the play continue, that she has to continue um her pursuit and and her uh plots and ploys and all of that stuff. Um, you know, even in the beginning, we see uh we see Bertram is leaving and she's she's very sad about this because she's watched him from afar and kind of fallen in love with him from afar because of her lack of social stature. Um, but then she hatches this plot to go and heal the king of France so that she can um, just be near him or, you know, maybe perhaps get him as a husband. Right. But, um, you know, like, oh, man, how am I going to how am I going to make this work? I know I'll just I'll just heal him of the sickness that yeah. no physician in the entire country has been able to even approach. But oh, I'll take care of that. You know, no big deal. Yeah. Right. Like that's. Yeah. I'm it's curious. Remarkable, right. She's got gang. I'm curious sure. if that situation yeah. when we get there is like the the beheading of John the Baptist kind of a thing, right? Where the king, you know, Herod says to um, the daughter there with the Herodias's daughter, he yeah. says, Salome, you know, ask me anything you want. I'll give you up to half yeah. my kingdom. Uh-huh. And then she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. After, you know, she colludes with her mother and then says, I want the head of John the Baptist. So I'm curious who, who, whose idea is it that she mm-hmm. could marry any man in the in the in the court does does the king come up with that idea on his own or does she provoke the offer to him like that's that that's curious to me i'm waiting to see how that's going to unfold yeah i know you, i see your eyes Nora you and i are know, trying but... not to say anything right now <laughs> yeah don't spoil and then no spoilers uh, oh uh, yeah that's it i can't remember there's something else but yeah i, I think if she's got a if, if her situation is her social status right like that's i think that's what shakespeare's maybe commenting on it's, it's ophelia like because ophelia mm. can't marry hamlet right but then ophelia has to go to her father to figure out what to do mm. and then her father's just a, an idiot and then but but helena can't go to her father she has no father to go to right and she right. can't go to her mother you know her matron, matron because that's the mother of the, the boy, right? So she has to kind of hatch the plot on her own. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the countess. I think we all really like the countess. And I, I, I think Shakespeare deserves a compliment here because we are all talking about these characters in terms of the countess's approval or disapproval. And I think that's a little bit of, that's a little touch of expertise there because I think if we just had Bertram on his own without this great mother, 
I think it, it, it would be really difficult to overcome his actions in act two, but we're like, he, he's got to have something good going for him because the countess is his mother and Helena likes him. He's got to have some redeeming qualities here. Right. Um, and I think it's also interesting. We always, at least I find myself whenever there's a kind of narrator figure. And I think our countess is the narrator kind of, of act one. We, we just like that person who's telling us the story, you mm. know? And we approve what she approves of and we disapprove what she disapproves of until we get a little bit, you know, broader perspective. But I don't think in this play we're going to lose that affection for the Countess. She might not be driving the action as much as she does in Act 1, but we're still, I think, by the end going to like her. You think I'm right well, there? I think just we- even, her, even her support um, of Helena is, is telling. Yeah. You know? Yeah, she could so easily, when Helena tells her, I love your son, she could so easily. Like, well, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Don't do that. Well, get over right. it. Yeah. Right. Stick with right. somebody that's more your. And you're not going to Paris. I, I won't allow it. Right. Yeah, exactly. One other character that I wait, really wait. want to talk I, about. I have yeah. a question about Helena yeah, yeah, yeah. or I have a comment about Helena. So at, at some point the question is going to have to come up. I don't think we're there yet, but I assume at some point the question is going to come up. Do we approve of her love for Bertram? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like continued love or whatever, like mm-hmm. not, not only that, but then do we approve of her plot to get him? That, which is the part I do know. Um, and so like right now I approve of it because I don't know anything about him and he, the mom, you know, her and the mom both like him and I like them. So, you know, I like him. But is, but is there a point where he could cross the line where that love becomes like we would disapprove of her love for him or does somehow the countess make like, I think kind of what you're hinting at Tim, maybe, uh, or at least broaching as a question that does the countess, does the countess somehow make the love for Bertram approve approvable in spite of Bertram himself? Yeah. Nora. <laughs> um. Oh man. I don't know how to how to say how to it without spoil- like ruining how to things. Not spoiler that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, for I don't sure. know. I mean, I will say the the countess makes me because I I don't like Bertram, but it has a lot more to do with later than now, but it makes me view him more as um immature, impetuous, maybe spoiled brat like and less like evil or a villain mm. right and mm. i think that probably has mostly to do with his mother mm. right like i i have this uh, this tendency to want to even paint the bad things with a little bit of a softer tone yeah does that make sense oh yeah yeah that makes plenty of sense yeah and, and i do think it's almost entirely due to his mother and and to helena um but i will <laughs> say i don't i mean helena's affection isn't isn't really explained. It's just, we just kind of jump right in and she just says, I, I love him. I'm in love with him. I like to, to draw his face and watch him and you know, all of that. So we, we have this idea that it's grown over some time, but we don't really know what it's based on. Yeah. I love this about Shakespeare. This is, he does this quite often. We get a character who has a strong emotion about something in this case, Helena loves Bertram and we don't get any explanation for it. I'm thinking about Iago 
Um, mm. For Othello, there's kind of a his rumor hatred, that maybe yeah. Othello has kind of flirted with his wife or something like that. But really what we get is, I hate the more. That's what Iago him. says. He just hates right. him from the get-go. I get just go. hate him. Right. right. And I appreciate it because um, on Close Reads, the kind of like flagship podcast, David and Heidi and I were talking about this this plot that's become really um, popular in the 2020s, the kind of trauma plot, which is no, no action um, – by a main character can exist just for its own sake. It has to be explained, especially if it's kind of like a darker impulse or a destructive oh, action without yeah. talking about like mom and dad or whatever trauma mm. kind of like exists in their like background. Like all the backstories. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so what it does is it sort of fatalizes trauma in a way. Mm. Like if you have it, well, then you're going to be the sort of person who does this disastrous deed and trauma. I mean, Shakespeare's kind of like, no, it's much more complex than that. I'm just going to yep. like people just, they make decisions and they act. There's a kind of like character forward sense of um, character building yeah. that I really appreciate in. Yeah. If he wrote, if you were at Othello today or if somebody else wrote Othello today, then we would know that Iago was mugged once by a. Absolutely. Muslim or something. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And That's I think true. in a way it kind of would diminish Iago's perniciousness because we're just like, oh yeah, it's just about that mugging. It's just about that mugging. A lot of people. Well, even mugged. his personhood, right? Like, yeah. He's not even a man who makes willful choices. He's just a man exactly. who reacts exactly. to circumstances. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. I want to talk about mm. really briefly Lefew, L A F E W. I found him, and I have to admit, it's a little bit more based on Act Two than Act One. He is kind of like this little sub-hero for me. So he's this older French nobleman, lots of advice to the king, and he's in good shape with the countess. And he knows what Helena is worth. He kind of sees who she really is. And uh, Parole he sees him as worthless. And I think in some way, um, he is on one of Bertram's shoulders and Parole is on the other shoulder. And they're each whispering in mm. Bertram's ear saying, go this way, no, go this way, no, go this way, no, go this way. And I think a lot of the story is going to be, okay, which one does he listen to? Mm. Does he listen to Parole, this... Um, he gets called a window of lace in act two by Lefew. Lefew hates him. He's just like, you're oh, nothing. Man. All you are is Their just your confrontation clothes. confrontation is great. It's so great. It's so it's great. great. Um, and he, I mean, like he has the eyes to see how wonderful and lovely Helena is despite her low birth. She's a beautiful right. person on the inside and he sees it. Right. So I, I, like, I raised Lafue to talk about, and I just kind of like blathered on about what I thought about him. Sorry. Well, is he's the guy that tells the countess, right? In the opening scene, right? He tells the countess, you shall find of the king a husband. Mm-hmm. So is there, a double, is there a double love story going on here? Where like the king and the countess are going to be? 
I think I, I took that more like a, like a protector, like a provider and protector, mm. like he's going to take the place. Um, so it's, it's safe and good for you to send your son there in his care. Right. Um, because there's, there's gotta be some reason that, I mean, he's a, he's a count, right. She's a countess. You wouldn't think that they're destitute. Um, but there's some reason that he needs to be in the care of the King other mm. than a plot device. Right. Right. So right. is, is LeFou the, the guy that goes to get Bertram to bring him to the court? Is that why he's in this opening scene? He's picking Bertram up and then delivering them to the court because in scene two, when Bertram appears, it says, enter Bertram LeFou and parole. But then he doesn't speak in that scene. LeFou doesn't. Or, well, neither does parole, I don't think, but. So the two of them have gone to pick up Bertram, I guess, or they're escorting Bertram to the court, or, or maybe they're at his attendance. I maybe think they parole was already there. Yeah, parole was already parole there. Parole was already yeah. there because Helena knows him already. Yeah, well, parole is already at the countess's house, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. but then parole shows up at the king's court with Bertram. Yeah, I think he just goes along with him, doesn't he? Yeah, they're buddies. This is part of yeah. Bertram's problem. Bad company corrupts Bros, good morals. Man. Yeah. Oh man. my gosh, I was thinking the same. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing about him. Yeah. That I was one know, of the man. Earliest... Doesn't seem that bad. He just likes to talk about virginity. Uh, <laughs> just wait, dude. Just wait. Till right. act two. My whole stick for this play is going to be to defend Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited now. <laughs> I love that too. That's going to be a great. Very strong yeah. yeah. That's going to be great. I like man. words. Can't wait to hear it. Can't wait to hear it. Hey, um, so next week, obviously, Act 2. We don't want to give too much away in Act 1, so I would like to keep it a little bit short. Um, Matt, can you tell us anything about what's going on at Circe that people might, might be interested in? Other than your benevolent rulership. Oh. <laughs> what's going on at Circe yeah, that's coming yeah. up? Yeah. Uh, so it's close. So this might, this episode might not, or might be airing right around the time, but there's a conference in Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C. area hmm. that uh, is happening, which is cool. Um, that'll be fun. And then we have in March, I don't think there's a date for it yet, but in March, it looks like we might be having our first regional conference in Ohio. Mm. So we're going to be in Columbus really? area, it looks like. So there's a school there that uh, is going to host it and everything. So how far is that from that's, you? That's or close you, to but... you. This is like a yeah. proof that I do not know American geography. Really? It's like, yeah, it's like two and a half hours from oh, me. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Tim's yeah, lived in two close. corners of the country, <laughs> Seattle and Georgia. I know. Right? It's exactly <laughs> right. I live on one coast in the south or the other coast in the north. And everything in between, I'm just like, Texas? Everything else is Texas. <laughs> Tim, you have to tell us, and you have you have a lot of stuff that's happened since our last show together. I mean, Indeed. I'm sure the listeners already know all this because you probably have talked about this on other plays. But for Nora and me, this is this is kind of a big deal. Agreed. Wait, what? Do you, wait, I don't know what you're talking about. You got a haircut. Clearly, look. Yeah, I did get a haircut. I you got married, Tim. Tim, you got married since oh, the last oh, yeah. time we did Dude, a Dude, that was together. in May. It's September. It has been that long. Yeah, but no, I did get married. 
Um, it's old news. It is. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And what else to say about that? Like, Galen's great. Galen and I went to Scotland. We that's went to more recent. Nora. You like you are going to be so. If you knew the thing that. Um, Galen and I went to in Edinburgh, the Fringe Festival. If you had ever, if you knew oh, about the Oh, I know the Fringe do you Festival. Really? Yes, I do know it. Oh my gosh. Have you, you been? Go? No. Uh, oh. No. So Galen <sighs> went three years ago. And when we got engaged, we started talking about honeymoons. And she's like, I really want to go to the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh. And I was like, great. That sounds great. But I didn't really have any idea. I had no idea. It was absolutely breathtakingly wonderful. Mm. After the first day at the fringe, I turned to Gail and I said, we have to do this every single year. And she was like, Oh, I know we have to do it every single year. Um, that's awesome. Just because in case people did not hear me blather about it during close reads, the fringe festival is I think the world's largest arts festival in Edinburgh, Scotland. It's not two dimensional art. It's not sculpture. It's performing arts. So everything from circus acts to theater to stand-up comedy to music it is has everything and so galen and i would wake up we'd have bought tickets the night before and we would just go to whatever show that we wanted to see and there are 3600 different performing performers that could be a troupe that could be an individual that performed for three weeks straight and so one of the hard things is like, you have 3,600 things to choose from what's good and what's bad. So you just end up talking to people and say, hey, what have you seen that's really good? And if people come out raving about such and such, then you just say, okay, we've got to go see it. So that's how we would kind of make our docket. And we would go see anywhere from three to six play or three to six performances a day. And it, I can't tell you. I can't even describe how wonderful it was. And it's happening in this city that is just robed in history. Unlike, I mean, like most European cities compared to American cities are, you know, deeply robed in history. But it seems like Edinburgh is even more so. There's so much beautiful statuary and all the buildings are, they're kind of soot stained. Anyway, it was just wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Did you get that tan in Scotland? No, we have a pool at our <laughs> condo and I'm like a little bit obsessive about it. I'm just like, I want to go to the pool every day. If I'm going to do work, I'm going to sit outside with my laptop in the sun. And that's nice. what I do. Yeah. Um, Nora and I look like we haven't been outside in months. And then, I mean, just come relative to you, you're so dark. I know. I know. It's going to go away because the pool's closing up in like two weeks and I'm going to go crying into my corner and turn into a pasty middle-aged man all over again. But until then, we'll hang tight. Um, You guys, thanks for coming on the show. Let's do this again for Act Two in a week. Oh, were that all? I think not on my father. And these great tears grace his remembrance more than those I shed for him. What was he like? I have forgot him. My imagination carries no favor in it but Bertram's. I am undone. There is no living none if Bertram be away. T'were all one that I should love a bright particular star and think to wed it he is so above me. 
In his bright radiance and collateral light must I be comforted, not in his sphere. The ambition in my love thus plagues itself. The hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love. Oh, twas pretty, though a plague, to see him every hour, to draw his arched brow, his hawking eye, his curl in our heart's table. Heart too capable of every line and trick of his sweet favor. But now he's gone, and my idolatrous fancy must sanctify his relics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.